Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn to the Lord's Word again this morning to Malachi chapter 2. If you were here with us, you know that last week we began our time in this prophet, this final prophet before the arrival of Christ, who has come to cross-examine the hearts of God's people, to reveal the sin in their lives and the lack of honor for God in their heart, but also to reaffirm God's promise that a Messiah is coming, a Messiah who will come for salvation and judgment. In chapter 1, we saw God remind the people of his love for them before then challenging their worship, which instead of proclaiming God's glory, was actually proclaiming that God was unworthy of anything but sick and lame animals that the people did not need. And as God challenged all of Israel in chapter 1, he particularly highlighted the role of the priests who were responsible It was their job to guide and to guard Israel's worship in many ways. And as we move to chapter 2, that focus will become even more sharp as God addresses the priests directly and challenges them for their failure to carry out the responsibility that God had given them to lead the people in worship. This morning we look at verses 1 through 9. Would you join me as we read God's word from Malachi chapter 2? And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." This is God's Word. Father, how we thank You for Your Word. Would You use it in our hearts to draw us closer to You, to make us more like You, and to honor Your name. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. In 2001, the business world was shocked by the collapse of one of the ten largest companies in the world, Enron. And as a high school student at the time who was interested in current events and reading articles, I came across article after article titled with some variation of the question, how could Enron fail? 
It was the seventh largest company in the world. And the main answers given were bad accounting and unethical trading practices. But in the years following Enron's fall, it became clear that those were not the root of Enron's fall. The root of Enron's fall was its leaders. See, Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling were ruthless, unethical leaders who encouraged a ruthless, unethical culture throughout the company. Lower-level employees mimicked their behavior. They cultivated competition between every level of employees and challenged them to beat one another at results and to break any rule necessary to do so. In order to compete with someone who's cheating, of course, you usually have to cheat. And that began to happen from every level. And so Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling's character as leaders impacted the entire organization at every level and plunged it into the greatest business failure that the world has known to date. Of course, it shouldn't take Enron for us to know this simple principle. Whether it's a corporation, a church, a family, a nation, they reflect their leaders. And leaders bear a particular responsibility for those in their care. And that's the principle that it's at stake here in Malachi chapter 2. The priests have been given a weighty responsibility to lead Israel in their worship. And they have failed in their calling. And their sin has led to sin in all of Israel. And they will be held accountable. And so once again, in lawyer-like fashion, Malachi builds his case. First declaring the coming consequences on the priests. Then reminding them of their covenant calling as descendants of Levi. And then finally detailing their current practices which have earned them judgment. Let's follow Malachi's case here, beginning with the coming consequences on the priests in verses 1 through 4. Remember that we're coming off chapter 1, where we saw that God demonstrated the priests had despised the name of God by accepting and offering animals that were lame and sick and blind, which belittled his name before all Israel and the nations. And so Malachi begins in verse 1 by issuing this warning to the priests, if you will not listen and take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. This is a significant judgment because remember that one of the callings of the priests was to bless the people of Israel in God's name. God called the priests to declare a blessing And when the priest declared, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Those were the words God had given the priests to bless the people, and these words were the means that God used to bring blessing to his people. But now because of the people's sin, God says that he will respond when the priests declare words of blessing, not by bringing blessing, but by bringing a curse. He will bring continued futility upon Israel rather than blessing. And I think if you want to see the weight of this judgment, you need only compare this verse with Numbers 23. You remember the story. A Moabite king, Balak, hired the local prophet Balaam to declare a curse on Israel. 
And Balaam's own donkey ended up speaking and rebuking him for his effort. But what happened in that story is that Balaam sought to give words of curse on Israel. But God, who was the defender and savior of Israel, three times turned those words of curse into a blessing, declaring flourishing and hope for his people, despite any efforts to the contrary. But do you see what has happened now? Sin has entered the priests of Israel so that though they try to use words of blessing, they will be turned into words of cursing, which will lead to further punishment and futility on Israel. And the Lord adds, not only is this what's ahead for the priests if they don't repent, but this judgment is already happening to them. It explains their current circumstances. And so the priests in their calling to bless the people lead to judgment. But God then takes the judgment a step further. Because see, the priests were called to be holy, to be set apart in purity before the Lord. But because of their sin and their belittling of God's name, God says that He will spread dung on their faces that they might be taken away from His presence with it. Now, dung is a word that was used to refer to the organs and the refuse of an animal which were taken out of the temple. So when an animal was killed for a sacrifice, they would offer the choice piece of meat as an offering to the Lord. But the organs and the refuse would be taken out of the temple and out of the city and discarded away from the presence of the Lord, for it was unclean and could not be in His presence. So you see what the Lord is saying? Because of your sin, you are no longer pure. You are no longer holy. But you are impure and cannot be in my presence. And so I will take you out of my presence like the dung that is taken out from my presence. See, God's words here, they're not some disgusting or petty threat to insult the priest. This is not like elementary school playground potty humor insults that God's throwing around. This is weighty judgment where God reverses the calling of the priests who will no longer be pure and holy to stand in his presence, but will be taken out with the refuse, impure and unable to stand before him. These are harsh consequences. Why would the Lord declare such consequences against the priests? Well, we see in verses 5 to 7 that the Lord begins by reminding these priests in three beautiful verses of their covenant calling before the Lord of what they were to be doing. God says His covenant with the Levites was one of life and peace rooted in the fear of the Lord. In other words, at the root of God's covenant with the Levites was their fear of the Lord and the awe of His name which would then bring forth fruit, fruit of obedience and faithfulness and holiness which would lead to life and peace for them and God's people. That's how the structure of the covenant was to work. And that's the pattern on all of Scripture. The fear of the Lord is what leads to worship and obedience. So you might think of Proverbs 9.10, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or maybe you think of Exodus 20, where God declares that the fear of the Lord will keep Israel from sin and keep them faithful to His covenant. I think since this passage roots everything in the fear of the Lord, it's worth a little reminder of what it means to fear the Lord. I think with well-meaning intent, we often hear things like, the fear of the Lord is not literally being afraid of God, but having respect for His name. 
In one sense, that's true. But in another sense, that's not true. Because the overwhelming power and authority and justice of God compared to our creatureliness and sinfulness ought to lead us to a sense of terror in His presence as it did for Israel when they came to Mount Sinai and the Lord appeared in smoking and and flashing lightning and thundering power and they drew back afraid and God says, that is good, that is the right response. For it is the fear of my name that will lead you to obedience. It was a very untheological reflection by American Pulitzer winning author Annie Dillard who sheds light on this. She famously wrote, On the whole, I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of their conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. She says it's madness to wear ladies' straw hats into church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should last us to our pews if we would realize the power of the God we are coming into the presence of. And it's this fearful understanding of who God is who leads to the fruit of obedience and worship in our lives. Of course, we can also say that the fear of the Lord for His people is no longer defined by terror. Because this very God has drawn near to us and declared His love for us and died to make us His own so that He is our Savior and our Defender. So that John can say in 1 John 4 that His perfect love drives out fear. Maybe we can understand this tension the Bible is talking about by picturing ourselves in the middle of a a field in the midst of warfare with an Abrams tank rolling up towards us. It's overwhelming power compared to Our smallness means terror unto death if it is against us, but rejoicing leading to life and security and peace if it is for us. And so it is that one theologian summarizes the fear of the Lord by saying it includes the range of ideas that run from terror to wonder. But if we put these ideas into a single statement, to fear the Lord is to take God with utmost seriousness and to enter every single area of life as an area where God's will is decisive. A beautiful summary of the fear of the Lord. And this fear of the Lord was actually the foundation of God's covenant with the Levites. If you were to turn back to Exodus 32, where Israel worshipped the golden calf, Moses called out, Who is on the Lord's side? And all of the Levites came to his side, but no one else. And Moses says, Israel has sinned grievously, so take your swords and go through the camp and kill your fellow Israelites in punishment for their idolatry. And the Levites did so and executed 3,000 men of Israel for their sin. And Moses declared this, today, You, Levites, have been ordained for the service of the Lord that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And one generation later, Phinehas the Levite, in the midst of another time of idolatry and disobedience, saw an Israelite man bring a foreign woman into his tent as his wife. And Phinehas took up a spear and killed the man and his wife. And the Lord said, Phinehas, 
was jealous for my name, and he has turned back my wrath, saving Israel. Therefore, I give to him my covenant of peace, to him and his descendants as a perpetual covenant of priesthood, because he was jealous for his God. Do you see where this covenant, where God called the Levites to be priests, It was because in two instances they feared the name of the Lord more than the lives of their companions and honored Him above all else so that God called them to be mediators of God's covenant that they might lead all Israel to be holy and to fear the Lord and receive the covenant of blessings of life and of peace. And to carry out this role, God called the Levites to several tasks. They were to make the people's sacrifices to the Lord for their forgiveness of sin. But the priests were also to teach the people, to instruct them in God's word. See, the prophet was called to bring revelation to God's people. But it was the priests who would give the regular teaching of God's word. It was the priests who were to guard the knowledge of the Lord. And the people were to come to the priests for answers about the Lord's word. You may remember in Haggai when the people had a question about what they should do. They came to the priests for instruction. And so God has called the priests to guard the knowledge of the Lord and they were to walk in uprightness, setting an example of holiness for the people. And so you see this calling that the Levites were to teach and to live in holiness to minister in sacrifices before the Lord, and so lead all of God's people to turn away from sin and be faithful to the covenant. And all this can be summarized by Malachi's final comment in verse 7, that the priest is to be the messenger of the Lord of hosts, to represent the Lord before the people, to bring the Lord's words to his people. That's a high calling, and it comes with great responsibility. And here we find that the priests have not lived up to it. We see then third in verses 8 and 9 that Malachi ends with his closing argument, a statement of facts, if you will, about how the priests have actually lived compared to their calling. And what you see in verses 8 and 9 is a point and counterpoint of how the priests have exactly done the opposite of what they are supposed to do. Instead of being living examples of godliness and walking in uprightness, the priests have turned aside from the way and have corrupted the covenant. They're leading the people all right, but they're leading them in the opposite way that they're supposed to lead them. Instead of teaching truth and turning many away from iniquity, they're teaching falsehood and so turning more and more people to iniquity, to stumble in their instruction. And Malachi ends by saying that they also are showing partiality in their instructions. It doesn't say exactly how they were showing partiality. Maybe it was for the wealthy over the poor. Maybe it was for themselves and their friends over those they didn't care about. But either way, partiality itself is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord speaks truly and justly to everyone because we fear the Lord first. Partiality fears man and puts man's concerns or my own concerns first. And so they have undermined the fear of the Lord. And it's no wonder that the final verdict in Malachi's case is this. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, and as much as you do not keep my ways. This is a statement of judgment, but it is also a call to repentance to the priests 
in their responsibility before the Lord. Well, in the time that we have left, let's step back from the details of the case for a minute and ask, how does all of this apply to us this morning? Few, if any of us, are descendants of a Levite, perhaps, but these verses contain precious truths for our hearts. Because to begin, this passage calls us back to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the only proper response to the character and the person of God and all of His power and authority and justice and mercy. And it is always the fear of the Lord that leads to the fruit of obedience and worship, leading to life and peace. For some of us, we're just so used to talking about God, so used to coming to church, so used to hearing about Jesus that we've lost the proper sense of the fear of the Lord and who He is and the worship and obedience that He deserves simply from our long routines. But probably the single greatest evidence of the lack of the fear of the Lord is how quick we are to believe and act in ways that are contrary to God's Word or to reinterpret God's Word to justify how we would like to live our lives. And so we hear excuses that go like this. Well, the way I like to think of this passage is, or I don't think that God would really want me to have to live like this. Or based on what we know today, that can't be right. Or I've prayed about it and I don't feel guilty. Or I read an article online that said this was okay for Christians. And if it's a debated point among Christians, certainly it's okay to take either side. And yet all of these are justifications that lead us to disobey God's word. They are justifications rooted in our desire for how we would feel we would want to live rather than a fear of the Lord, rather than seeing God's will as decisive in that area of my life. But God's word is our only standard and God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to suggest that God's word does not apply to any particular situation in my life is to refuse to recognize his authority in that area. And so we are called as God's people to fear the Lord that we might bear the fruit of obedience and worship to his glory. Well, then let's consider God's call to priests. In many ways, priests are the forerunners of the pastors in our churches. This makes this a rather difficult passage or a scary passage for a pastor to preach because it's like holding up a mirror to what we ought to be. But I hope that these verses are what you would demand from your pastors And what you should pray for in your pastors. And I can tell you, it is so easy as a pastor to slip from the fear of the Lord into the fear of man. To want to say, oh, let me say things this way. So and so would like to hear that. Or to temper my words to not touch an issue for fear of how someone might respond. Or to how some would react to a decision. And we see the devastating effects in our churches when pastors seek to be culturally acceptable or avoid the difficult task of shepherding fellow sinners. And so pray for your pastors, please, to fear God and to fear Him alone. Pray and look for pastors who will speak the truth of God's Word and will seek to explain God's Word accurately, for they are called to be messengers from the Lord. You know, a a parent once humorously told me of how their words could be misunderstood when they forget some of the presuppositions we make when parenting children. 
They had been very diligently reminding their child that when we go to church, we're going to hear the word of God. And so the child began to call their pastor God. Because after all, that's whose word we went to hear. And of course, that's wrong to think of your pastor as God. But in another sense, God calls pastors to be his messengers and to declare his word. And when a pastor does so faithfully, we are listening to God speak to us through his word and through the preached word. And so pray that your pastors will guard the truth of God's word like soldiers who are guarding the only bridge to the heart of our city from the approach of the enemy. Pray that your pastors will preach in a way to turn us from sin. It's easy to preach truths that we all agree with in here. And it's easy to rail against the culture out there. But neither of those are the primary calling of the pastor. We are to to preach against the sins in here. That we might be turned away from sin to worship our God in holiness. Pray for your pastors to live in holiness. It seems like hardly a week goes by without hearing a story of another pastor who's been caught in moral failing. And the damage that does to the church and the glory of God's name is significant. So pray for your pastors to walk in holiness before the Lord. This is what we look for from our pastors in the church. But if pastors are heirs in a unique sense of this priestly role, it is also true that every Christian is called as a priest to declare God's word and to represent him. The New Testament calls all believers royal priesthood. And you may think about Paul who reminds us that all who are new creations in Christ are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us that the world might be reconciled to God. And as such, every single one of us here should be examining our hearts to see if we are rooted in the fear of the Lord. We should look at our words to see if we are speaking truth that no wrong would be on our lips. We should look at our lives to see if we're walking in uprightness guarding the knowledge of the Lord as messengers of him that others might know his offer of life through Jesus Christ and might give glory to his name. And finally, we read here in Malachi, this very last book of the Old Testament, about the failure of the priests, the very people called to guard God's truth. And we think, and Israel should be thinking, what hope is there for Israel when again and again their leaders fall? When again and again their prophets and their priests and their kings lead Israel to sin? And again and again Israel's heart should be crying out, we must have a better priest, a better king, a better prophet. Who will lead God's people in the fear of the Lord? Who will mediate God's covenant so that we might have life and peace? That's the longing, that's the cry that Israel and we should be thinking and feeling as we read these words in the final book of the Old Testament. And then with joy, we should read the promise that's coming, that this Messiah, this one who would be a better priest of a better covenant, according to Hebrews 7, this one who will be the messenger of the Lord, the word become flesh to dwell among us, to shine as light and darkness full of grace and truth, who will offer himself up for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of our sins. See, through his death on the cross in our place and his resurrection for our life, Jesus has arrived, the Messiah, the one priest, the one king, the one prophet we need. And in pouring out his spirit, 
He unites us to himself. He makes us new so that he might bring this goal of life and peace through covenant with God. So brothers and sisters, even as we strive to be faithful pastors, even as we strive together to be faithful ambassadors of Christ, we look to the one who is our hope, Jesus Christ. And if this morning you have not come to put your trust in him as your savior, come to him. He stands ready to save you from God's curse on sin and to bring blessing. And if you have come to Jesus Christ, rejoice again this morning. Rejoice in him who has made God's covenant of life and peace ours in him forevermore. Thank God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for this passage of your word. How we thank you that you recall us from our sin. You speak to us in our wanderings. Father, bring us back to our fear of the Lord. Bring us back to our fear of the Lord that we might bear the fruit of obedience and worship that we might bear your messages to those around us, that we might be ambassadors for Christ, that we might know the joy of our union with you and a covenant of life and peace. How we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.